0: Hello and welcome to the Drug Science Podcast with me, David Nutt. Here we're bringing together experts and activists for a rational, honest and informed conversation about drugs. Well, hello everyone and welcome to this another podcast from Drug Science. And today I'm delighted to have with me a man that I'm sure you've all heard of. hope you've all read his book called How to Change Your Mind, which I think is probably the most influential book in the field of psychedelics for very many years. I think you've got to go back to 1953 and Aldous Huxley to find a book that has had or will have as had as much influence. So it's absolutely delight to have you here today, Michael, because you've been part of the way to change the world's mind as well as, uh, as your own mind.
1: Well, yeah. And, and you've helped me in that enterprise. We had some key interviews for that book that were enormously helpful in uh, making me understand what was going on.
0: Well, what I liked about your, that book was that uh, it helped me understand what I was doing as well, which is always good <laughs> to see other people's take on what you're doing. <laughs> right. From another perspective, yes. But today we're talking about his new book, which is called This Is Your Mind on Plants. And it's a, a remarkable uh, volume, which covers three plants. It covers opium, it covers caffeine, and it covers mescaline. So the very first question i got to put to you is uh, why and why those three? Yeah, well,
1: you know, I have a long-standing interest in the symbiosis of plants and people. I've been writing about that since I started writing about what was going on in my garden. And I've always been curious about the ways plants have thrived by gratifying human desires. That's their evolutionary strategy, right? I mean, they can't move around. So they use chemistry to get us to work for them and get bees to work for them and repel insects, other kinds of insects. So that's been a longstanding fascination. Why is this? Why do we like to change consciousness? Uh, What's in it for us? What's in it for the plants that help us to do it? How do they figure out how to manufacture the precise molecule that fits into receptors in the human brain? That's kind of astonishing. So Anyway, I've touched on this in other work, but I wanted to do a deeper dive, and I am at bottom a garden writer. I mean, I've been writing about events in my garden for many, many years, and I think you can find the whole world in your garden if you look, look close enough. And then the, question, the second question, why these three? There are a couple answers. One is they're, they're representative of large classes of drugs. So there's an upper, a downer, and an outer. Uh, that's how I refer to the psychedelic, <laughs> and uh, a stimulant a, in in caffeine, a sedative or depressant in opium, and then a and a psychedelic in mescaline. So these are three big classes of drugs. It doesn't cover everything, but that's most of what the psychoactives tend to do for us. And then I had a I had personal involvement with uh, you know two of them at least to begin with mescaline. I had no I had had no contact with it all, and I think opium. I was interested in, it in part, because in the United States, at least, we are still in the midst of this terrible crisis. Ninety-three thousand people overdosed last year—opiates. Yet this drug is as as much of a scourge as it is is also a great blessing, and it really gets at this—the ambiguities of drugs. They're, you know, the fact that, as the Greeks understood, they're both allies and poisons. So, and they're great stories. They're great stories that have a lot to teach us about ourselves and our engagement with the natural
0: world. Indeed they do. Well, let's start in the order which they appear in the book, particularly the opium, because of course, you know, what's, this is something that you touched on a very long time ago, <laughs> almost possibly to your, certainly not to your, if not to your regret, to your consternation. Share people the, the wonderful story yes. about the growing poppies.
1: I got entangled with, opium poppies and the drug war way back when in 1996, when I was really starting out as a writer. And I came across, I was writing about my garden. I was writing garden articles for the New York Times uh, Magazine and for Harper's Magazine. And my editor sent me this underground press book called Opium for the Masses. And it purported to teach you how to grow your own and prepare your own opium. Now, I had no particular interest in opium. My experience of opioids had to do with when I had my wisdom teeth removed, and and it wasn't very pleasant. I didn't really like the feeling. I got nauseous from it. But to a gardener, this is a challenge. You know, Make your own opium at home. (laughs) I, I couldn't resist, and I thought it'd be a good column, and it'd be a very light story. Anyway, I start corresponding with the author of this book. His name is Jim Hogshire, and he is a producer of zines, he's kind of in the drug culture, very interested in pills of all kinds. And he he produces this book that basically tells you, you know, here are the, the le- legally available seeds. And by the way, many people listening to this podcast grow opium poppies and, and may not even know it. Uh, Papaver Omniferum is the variety and they're all over English gardens and they're gorgeous. They're one of the most spectacular flowers at every stage, the seed pod as much as the, the, the flower itself. And I start corresponding with Jim, getting horticultural advice, asking him if he had seeds he could share with me. And I'm going on my merry way and I plant my opium and it's coming up in the garden. And then I get word that Jim has been arrested by the police in Seattle where he lives. A SWAT team clothed in black ninja suits bust into his apartment, throw him up against the wall and arrest him for the crime of manufacturing narcotics. And the evidence they have is a box of legally available poppy seed heads that you can find in any florist shop and are perfectly you know, acceptable unless, and this is a weird wrinkle in the drug law, you have it in your head that this is a narcotic, a scheduled substance that you can turn into opium or heroin or morphine or whatever. And how did they prove that he had that intent? Well, he'd, he'd written this book and the book was there too. And the book was the evidence of the intent, mens rea it's called in, in the law. So I kind of freak out because I'm doing the same thing. I have the same intent. I own the book also. I've written him emails. They're on his hard drive. And it sort of entangles me in this summer of fear and paranoia. uh, And this is the summer of 1996, trying to figure out what is the government up to? And am I in jeopardy? And I did some investigative journalism and learned that indeed there was this quiet campaign to stamp out home opium growing which is much easier than the government would have us believe. And they were making some very strategic busts and they were even pulling out the opium poppies in Thomas Jefferson's garden at Monticello. They just wanted to erase opium from the American landscape. And so I write this piece about, and I learned a lot about the drug war. I learned that I am indeed potentially at risk for a, a serious prison sentence, I think five to 20 years and a million dollar fine. And not only that, in America at that time, laws had been passed allowing the police to confiscate your property if it is involved in the commission of a drug crime. So in other words, if a drug is found growing on your land, whether you know it or not, whether you are convicted of anything or not, the property is guilty or the car is guilty and can be forfeited, has to be forfeited to the to the police who support their have been supporting their budgets with this for many many years. So the potential here to completely wreck someone's life is real. And uh, so anyway, I hand in the piece to Harper's Magazine. It's now ballooned to this 15,000 word piece that took me a year to write and report. And I asked them to get it lawyered. And they, they sent it to a criminal defense lawyer who drove up to our house in the country in Connecticut and said, you'd be crazy to publish this. It is an admission to a violation of federal law, Controlled Substances Act. Here's the penalties, they can take your house, and he just lays it out for us. And I'm like, oh shit, you know this is bad. And I'm a freelance writer at the time. I was looking forward to this paycheck. I needed to publish this piece, and now I'm told I can't. The publisher of the magazine, Rick MacArthur, who's quite a wealthy man and a great champion of the First Amendment, when he hears about this, he says, well, we need a new lawyer, obviously. And he hires a First Amendment lawyer who comes to a very different conclusion, which is to say, this is exactly what the First Amendment exists to protect, this sort of comment on government policy, in this case, the drug war. And you should publish this piece. But he also said that if I wanted to minimize my risk, and I had to take into account my wife's interests, my son's interest, I mean, this wasn't just me making a stand and going to jail, but this is our, our whole life being put in jeopardy, that I could uh, minimize that risk by taking out two passages he thought were particularly pr- provocative. And that was the one where I describe how to turn poppy seed heads into into a a narcotic tea, poppy tea, or laudanum by making a tincture and alcohol. And then another passage, the so-called trip report, where I describe how it makes you feel. And so in the end, I published it without those passages. I've never felt good about that. It was self-censorship, but I felt it was the, the responsible thing to do given the risks. In the event, nothing happened. Poppy seed sales went up uh, the next year, but the government, I think, did not want to have a a confrontation with a big national magazine that had a lot of money behind it. And so that was that. Now, fast forward 25 years, and I've always wanted to publish the, 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 the full version of this piece, Restore the Missing Passages. But I also was very interested to learn something that I didn't know at the time, that changed the story for me and and made it a parable of the drug war in many ways. Uh, And that was that that same summer, I was, you know, tangling with the drug war and learning about this absurd front in that drug war. Uh, Purdue Pharma, the pharmaceutical company owned by the Sackler family, was introducing OxyContin. Now, this was a new opiate that supposedly was formulated in a way that made it safer and less addictive, something that the Sacklers knew very well was not the case. It was promoted heavily to doctors. They convinced many doctors that we were under-treating pain, that there were all sorts of indications that should get opiates, and thus planting the seeds of the opioid crisis we're still dealing with over-prescription of legal opiates. And in the years since, hundreds of thousands of people have died. Many people who started on legal opiates ended up with street heroin with all the risks that that entails. And so I realized that, you know, beneath our notice back in 1996, the the real public health problem tied to drugs and, and the opioid crisis in America is the largest public health problem tied to drugs over the history of the drug war. There wasn't much before that. It was a minor public health problem, if that. But they made it a big one, and and the point is that the drug war itself was missing the real story, and they were aiming all their artillery in exactly the wrong direction. So a very long answer to your question, but it's a complicated story. Forgive me.
0: Well, no, but what's interesting, I mean, obviously, there's several things I learned. Uh, I thought I knew quite a lot about opium. In fact, uh, uh, you probably don't know this, but you mentioned the Bentley compounds in your in this yeah. chapter. now. I was funded by the dis- a disciple of Bentley back in the 1980s to oh, work wow. to work on some of these derivatives. In fact, I, you probably don't know this, but I I cut my teeth working on buprenorphine subutex which is the uh-huh. the opiate sort of partial agonist treatment. So it was uh, I but I hadn't realized it Bentley had actually worked on you know with um, with poppy extracts or those many, you know, decades ago. But also the tea, I hadn't realized in your descriptions of the tea I didn't realize it, it's used in many countries yeah. during funerals, yeah.
1: It's served at funerals in the Arab world. It, it's a very mild narcotic. It It kind of lifts people's pain a little bit, and light, as I say, lightens the existential load. You know, I don't know that, I doubt anyone's ever died from an overdose of poppy tea. It's not that strong. I mean, you, you do notice something, but you're not knocked out by it. For a stronger experience, there's, you know, you can take those poppy seed heads and cut them up and, and just soak them in vodka. And that will extract a lot more of the uh, and that apparently I haven't tried that is a, is a much more powerful way to use it, but you know, neither is like using street heroin that's laced with fentanyl, where you don't know what you're getting and is extremely dangerous and is and seems to be what's killing a lot of people.
0: Well, precisely, it did make me wonder, you know, uh, well, a how absurd to be trying to eliminate ornamental puppies just because, yeah, the odd person might do something like make a pretty paltry kind of morphine from them, but on top, but missing the opportunity. And I, I began to wonder a little bit about whether we'd missed a trick here, because you've obviously seen the cannabis revolution with plant-based medicine, people taking low doses of cannabidiol and THC. I just wonder whether poppy tea might might have actually had a, had a role in helping people deal with small amounts of pain and maybe, you know, existential distress.
1: Oh, I think so. I mean, I think people with back trouble and, you know, this and that. I mean, the poppy tea, some people do get addicted on it. The withdrawal is not as it is depicted in the movies. You know, opiate withdrawal apparently is is a lot more like a flu, mm. easier on the body than alcohol withdrawal. But we have an image of it as something that can kill you. And it, that's not the case. There's so much misconception about the opiates, and so sorting through it all is 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 complicated. But I mean, you know all about that misinformation around
0: drugs. <laughs> well, that's why it was such a remark. I mean, it was kind of it was almost absurd, wasn't it? You know, that we're going to you know try to by stealth remove the poppy from the American garden, even though they didn't even I mean given that there were thousands of different species. And it was <laughs> and it was
1: clear too that when I talked to policemen and, and DEA authorities, they didn't understand the difference between the different species. And one guy had a poppy on his desk as he was talking to me. So there is the confusion extends to the authorities on exactly what, what they're going after. And it you know it may have just been one maniac in the DEA who made this his his obsession. That he saw this mm. book um, because they were Jim Ho- Jim Hogshire's book was on their radar. And, you know, they had look, the drug warriors in America had tremendous resources. And at the time, not a huge problem to deal with. There were, I, I did some research and there were only 5,000 heroin addicts in America in 1996. Really? That's not wow. in a country of 250 million, that's not a major that's public true. health problem. Yet, a huge army was deployed against
0: it. <laughs> yes, as we know, well, I think you, you probably are still the only country in the world that has its own special police force for drugs. Is that true? I didn't realize that. I thought everybody had one. <laughs> no, no, but you have the DEA, you know. Yeah. I mean, you know, that, that is it's that's a drug police force. You know, the rest of the world, police do drugs, other things. So at least they they've got a choice. They don't have to go for yes. drugs if they got something more interesting, whereas the DEA have got to go for drugs. Nothing else the they can they do. Can justify their existence, no. Yeah. Well, let's move on to caffeine then. And uh, I know, a surprising amount there. I thought I knew quite a bit about caffeine, but I had no idea that the plants made caffeine to attract bees. <laughs> but you as a gardener do. Yeah,
1: that was only recently discovered. I mean, caffeine, like a lot of these alkaloids, these, these psychoactive alkaloids, it begins as a pesticide. It's something that plants deploy to mess with the minds of insects or poison them in some ways. And also to prevent other plants from growing in the vicinity, right? They're herbicidal Mm -hmm. too and pesticidal. But the genius of plants is they can repurpose chemicals in all sorts of ways. And so what might begin as a pesticide Becomes an attractant in certain circumstances, and certain classes of plants, and citrus is the is the notable one, have figured out over the course of evolution that if you put a little bit of a low dose of caffeine in your nectar, and of course nectar is designed to attract, not repel insects, uh, you will get more attention from bees. That bees apparently like caffeine, and like us, it makes them better workers. They're more likely to remember the plant that gave them caffeine. We don't know if they have any kind of experience of a buzz or anything, but it may be totally subliminal or whatever word Mm. would be appropriate for bees. (laughs) And that they will return to those flowers more reliably and become, as the researchers said, more faithful pollinators. And to their detriment, by the way, they'll keep returning to the caffeinated flowers long after there's no nectar left. That's how much they like it. So that I thought was quite remarkable that this plant or a group of plants, cause it's coffee and tea and you know cacao and a couple others, cola nuts that, that make caffeine are using it to manipulate animals. And certainly they've succeeded in, in manipulating us into getting them an incredible amount of habitat they didn't have before. A huge amount of attention. Millions of Homo sapiens uh, spend their lives tending to coffee and tea That's plants. Right. <laughs> yes. It's quite an achievement on their part. And what's interesting is how pesticides morph into psychoactives and why. And And this question of why do plants produce seemingly more complex chemicals than they might need to. In other words, a simple poison that just killed your pest, why wouldn't that be a a preferable strategy? And Mm -hmm. and I've never heard a really good answer to it. My speculation is, though, that if you used a, a lethal poison on your pest, you would select for resistance pretty quickly in the pest population. And so it would lose its power. Whereas if you merely discombobulate the pest, leave it confused as to where you are, harm its memory and ruin its appetite, which all these alkaloids do, they suppress appetite, that may be a better strategy. And that's why they mess around with animal minds. Well,
0: most people won't know the story of the discovery of coffee, Uh, the goat herd in Ethiopia. Why Why don't you share that with us?
1: Well, you know, we don't know if this is myth or reality. It's It might be one of those just-so stories to explain how something got discovered. But the story goes that in the 700s or 800s, a goat herder in Ethiopia was watching his goats pay particular attention to a shrub that had bright red berries. And they would eat those berries and get quite frisky and stay up all night. And so he got curious about these berries. He harvested some of them. And brought them to a local monk who made a drink from them, and they discovered the properties of, of uh, caffeine, which was, you know, alert, alertness and focus. And and the monks discovered early on, and this happened in the Arab world, but it also happened in the in the East among Buddhists that this was a very good tool for meditating, that it helped you stay focused for a long time, and if you were doing these long meditations tea or coffee uh, the sufis used it the buddhists used it. it was an excellent tool for meditation of course we we repurpose caffeine quite a bit since then ourselves and use it for all sorts of things caffeine is a fascinating drug because we're all involved with it or 90 percent of us you know on a daily basis i'm i'm enjoying a coffee right now oh you've given come back on the. 100. i have <laughs> completely i'm back on um proudly no regrets <laughs> Well, we'll come to that a bit later but carry on (laughs) So, so it's i included it and i wanted to include a legal drug to just make people think a little what is a drug why do we moralize drugs you know are they tools or are they forces of evil or forces of good what are they and and so i thought it was important to include something that was really familiar most people don't even think of coffee or tea as a drug it's a food or a beverage and you know this is a drug that not only do adults use pretty much universally around the world, whether it's coffee or tea, but we actually give to our children in the form of soda. And in the US, I don't know about in the UK, but in the US, the top six soda brands, beginning with Coca-Cola and Pepsi, all contain caffeine. Now that caffeine is not naturally occurring as it is in coffee or tea, it is added. Why is it added? Well, it's a reinforcer, it makes people like soda better. Even though the industry won't admit that, that's, uh, Roland Griffith has done research that's pretty much proven that, that it doesn't, it's not about flavor, it's about reinforcement.
0: Yes, that's in in the book as well. But I, let's go back, let's stick with the history first, because yeah, I was very taken with your, uh, I suppose your thesis that actually coffee made the revolution in work because it took over from alcohol and people could focus better and work harder and, and replaced alcohol as the sort of drink of the masses.
1: Yeah, not completely. I mean, people are still drinking in England, as, as I've observed. But what's interesting about the history of caffeine, as opposed to a great many other drug histories, is that, you know, the opium, cannabis, alcohol, they've been around for thousands of years. And so it's very hard to have a sense of the world before they were introduced. Whereas mm. caffeine does not arrive in, in Europe till the 17th century. And we know exactly when it arrives in London. It's uh, the 1650s. Coffee, tea, and chocolate all arrive in the same
0: wonderful decade. <laughs> oh, so that was the, the original. You're right, the original 70s. Yeah, so that yeah. was the 60s, but the 1650s. So-
1: 1650s. So we have a sense of the world before and the world after. And that's that's unusual and, and kind of wonderful. So before caffeine, everybody drank. I mean, it was just... Uh, you know, amounts that would boggle our minds. Um, People drank morning, noon, and night. They gave alcohol to their kids the way we give soda to our kids. Not very strong, it was like hard cider, you know, things like that. But alcoholic drinks were safer than water. Water gave you diseases. But the fermentation process and the presence of alcohol killed or sanitized the water to a considerable extent. So, and, and this was understood, but, you know a population that 's bombed all the time or buzzed all the time is not going to be very efficient in the workplace. It might be fine for outdoor manual labor and in fact, on farms in Europe, there were beer breaks regular beer breaks they would come out and give you beer to keep you working and keep and nourish you because it had it had lots of calories So when caffeine comes in, people immediately under is, notice and and write about this shift to this more sober and civil drink. And the coffeehouse culture springs up in London, uh, which is incredibly vibrant. And it's a different conversation on coffee. You know, people talk about ideas. They talk about politics. They don't just get sloppy and sentimental as they do on alcohol. Work can get done. And it did. And a lot of intellectual work got done. And you see caffeine. So when caffeine comes into Europe, There's a different kind of conversation going on than happened in the taverns. It's a much more intellectual conversation. It's much more about work. And you find caffeine helping to fuel things like the age of reason. I mean, there are, you know, people, people associated with the scientific enterprise are all meeting at one particular coffee house and talking about, you know, Isaac Newton is there and Francis Bacon is there, and they're dissecting dolphins on the table, you know, that they've somehow found in. the Thames. And then you have, uh, you know, coffee houses dedicated to business and, and others to literature. And it's a really vibrant conversation. And this helps fuel the age of reason, the enlightenment, and I think the industrial revolution. Because as you're moving to working with people's minds more than their bodies, and you are also working with heavy machinery in these mills, you don't want drunk workers. You want someone who is going to be careful, focused, alert. You also need, since this equipment is so expensive, you need to run it 24 hours a day. And so you have a drug that allows us, I mean, previously we, we worked from the time we woke up, you know, from sunrise to sunset. That was a workday. But now you can have a night shift because caffeine will hide your tiredness from you and allow you to stay up all night. And so this is an incredibly powerful tool to basically create a worker uh, well suited to things like double entry bookkeeping and operating heavy machinery that's dangerous. So I think I think we capitalism owes a big debt of gratitude to caffeine, to coffee and tea. And during the industrial revolution, you know, employers fed tea to their workers heavily sweetened to keep them going. And you know, there's no better proof of the value of caffeine to employers than the institution of the coffee break in the US. And it's, I guess it's the tea break in the UK. In the US, your employer actually gives you a free drug twice a day, 10 o'clock and four o'clock, and paid time in which to enjoy it. Why is he or her doing that? Well, because it's making you a better worker. It's making you more productive, more efficient, and, you know, this has become an institution in the workplace. So we owe caffeine a lot and capitalism
0: owes caffeine an enormous amount. And of course, people think of America as being the uh, the center of, of coffee culture, because I guess that was the, uh, the old Boston Tea Party was the uh, put an end to your importing tea yeah we had a
1: problem with tea. We started out like well, it's very interesting you know England starts out as a coffee culture in the 18th century I'm sorry in the in the 17th century it's all coffee all the time within a hundred years though tea takes over and the reasons for that is the British Empire just didn't have any good coffee growing regions and initially the tea came from China and was expensive and the Chinese uh wanted pounds sterling you know they wanted silver for the tea they were shipping this led to a balance of payments problem for england which was solved by turning india its colony into a tea producing and opium producing country and that opium was exported over the objections of the chinese governments but it was forced on the Chinese, and that's how they dealt with the balance of payments, and, and addicted you know, countless numbers of Chinese, and, and helped you know, bring down what had been a, a pretty glorious civilization. So it's, it's not a happy story in that sense. And, but it shows you that these kind of vectors of imperialism and trade have been going on for a very long time, and that drugs have fueled it in many, many ways.
0: Well, that's right. I, when I, I give an introductory talk, about drugs and drug policy to students at Imperial College, I say to them, "This magnificent university, one of the best universities in the world. What do you think funded its foundation?" And they all sort of, "Well, they might, if they think at all, they might say coal, or, you know, or railways." <laughs> and I say, "No, drugs." And then they kind of look in horror because because that's been we, we've tried to wipe that out of our history. haven't we? And in that case, was it opium dealers? Well, it, I mean, basically, the British Empire was built on all drugs. It was built on selling opium to the Chinese, selling cannabis to the Indians. I mean, we made the Indians <laughs> buy cannabis from us, even though it grew wild. I mean, wild we, there, yeah. We were extraordinarily ruthless. And then, of course, you know, people bringing tea and uh, and coffee. Well, you know, a
1: lot of great American fortunes. There's a footnote in the book where I talk about these these august American fortunes that 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 have their name on our libraries and and. Mm-hmm art institutions, museums, they were opium dealers. And that's been erased from history. I didn't know There was a lot of money made in opium. And a lot of it was people in the West wanting to keep it out of their country and push it onto another country.
0: Um, And we we were all involved in that trade. But there's another twist in your book about caffeine and and drug wars, which is, of course, your civil war. Would it be fair to say the war was won by the North because they stopped they had all the coffee and the South <laughs> couldn't get it. Well, it's probably too simple. <laughs> but because
1: that's true that there were, we set up a blockade so the South could not get all sorts of goods, one of which was caffeine. And we understood that. And on the North, uh, we had the, the Northern Army, the Union Army had provisions i think 36 pounds of coffee per soldier uh, they understood the power of caffeine to keep soldiers happy and uh, and effective and in fact there were generals who would wait until their armies were maximally caffeinated before attacking and they would tell them to fill their thermoses with coffee not water all right and in the south they were kind of you know uh, they just didn't have that edge but the larger story is that The North in every sense was a caffeinated civilization. It already had an an industrial revolution. The South was still agrarian, sleepier. So they were in that pre-caffeine period. They did discover alternative sources of caffeine. There's a a tree, God, I forget the name of it, opon or something pon that produces caffeine in its leaves. And you can still buy this uh, an alternative source of caffeine and so but they yeah they struggled and caffeine definitely helped the north in the war and there's an historian who's, who's written about this that i quote in the book so you know caffeine has woven itself into our lives into our political economy into our rituals in all sorts of ways it's it's a very rich story and it was fascinating to learn about You know, the great thinkers of the Enlightenment were, you know, major caffeine hounds. You know, Voltaire apparently drank 72 cups a day. I don't know what that would do to you, but he got a lot of work done. Diderot wrote, he created the first encyclopedia on caffeine. And and Balzac was such a caffeine hound that he began to think that any water was just to dilute it. So (laughs) he started eating grounds, just pure coffee grounds. And he thought that on an empty stomach gave you the biggest
0: probably charge.
1: Does. And yeah. of course, he stayed up all night. You know, he wrote like fifty-four novels. Yes. Um, so he paid a price, though I would guess, in ulcers or, or some sort of issues.
0: So tell us about—I'd like your description of your addiction to caffeine and uh, your rituals. Just share with us the, your Saturday morning ritual to walk to your coffee and how you yeah. had to get what you did to just how you gave it up and tested yourself.
1: Well, this was a challenge presented to me by Roland Griffith, who we both know, who's a prominent psilocybin researcher at Johns Hopkins. Before he got interested in psychedelic research, however, he was a preeminent caffeine researcher in America. And he's he got uh, the caffeine use disorder or into the DSM. I mean, and uh, so when I was interviewing him for this book, he said, uh, you know, you really can't understand your relationship to a drug until you get off it. So you really should stop, You're, you are dependent on caffeine. You should stop for a while and see what happens and, and, and on, to better understand its power. So I took this challenge and I got off caffeine, uh, cold turkey for three months, which was really one of the harder things I've done in life. <laughs> and it's remarkable the withdrawal effects. I did not have the headaches. I did not have the flu-like symptoms, but I had this general sense of a fog that uh, never cleared uh, in the morning. And I lost my ability to concentrate completely. I, I felt very much like I had acquired attention deficit disorder and that peripheral matters kept intruding. Writing became impossible. Uh, writing is all about concentration, about, you know, putting one word after the next and taking a a very three-dimensional experience and and narrowing it down to that that linear channel. So I really struggled for a long time. And eventually, I could write again. Eventually, I could work again after a couple of weeks. But I still didn't feel myself. The entire three-month period, I felt off. And that's really weird, because it made me realize that my what I think of as my default transparent consciousness was, in fact, an altered state. It was caffeinated consciousness. And I had been drinking coffee since I was 10, and that was normal for me. And this other thing was not, and I didn't like it very much. The only positives, and there were two was that I slept like a teenager. I had some of the greatest sleeps I've had since I was young. And that happened very quickly and was wonderful. The other blessing was I got to go back on, <laughs> And that was, that was always my plan. I wasn't, you know, and people kind of misread this as like I'm arguing against coffee because I got off it. I don't think of that at all. I wanted to see what it'd be like to have that first cup once my caffeine virginity had been restored, which it was after three months. And that cup was one of the more powerful drug experiences I've had. And I've had some powerful ones.
0: It was psychedelic. It was was one of the most productive because you cleaned out your your house, your office. (laughs) Uh,
1: It was crazy. So I go down to this little cafe bakery cheese shop where we would get coffee in the morning. I, I didn't really make coffee until recently. And they had a nice little pocket park. And my wife and I went down and I got this, it was like a cappuccino drink. And after three months of drinking mint tea and chamomile tea, I, I had my first sip of coffee. And caffeine is an amazing drug. It, it, it doesn't just go into certain cells. It goes into all your cells. And it spreads out very efficiently, gets, gets through those cell walls. And I felt this wave of well-being uh, that morning. And, and it rose to this euphoric feeling. I felt so optimistic about everything. And this is in the midst of, you know, some hard times here politically in America, but I felt great. But over time the feeling evolved and I and I started feeling like I've got to get something done. I've got to do some work even though it was Saturday. So I told Judith, my wife, you know, let's let's get to work. And so she went off to her studio and I went up to my computer. And the first thing I did was kind of weird and unexpected, but I was like looking at my email, getting really annoyed at all the kind of listservs, all the political fundraising, the organizations, you know, asking for money. And so I I, uh, unsubscribed from like a hundred (laughs) listservs. I just nailed them one after and I just killed them. And so I cleaned out my email queue, and then I was like, okay, what next? Well, I went to my closet, and I had a shelf full of my sweaters that was kind of just all scrambled and chaotic, and I sorted all my sweaters and threw out ones with moth holes and took others to the dry cleaner. And so that was my morning. I was the, you know, ultimate caffeine worker, worker bee. (laughs) Yes. uh,
0: you. (laughs) Fantastic. Well, let's move on now to to the third one, which is uh, mescaline. Yeah, this is an interesting substance that I,
1: I knew very little about. And, you know, I mean, you know, you've been part of the psychedelic renaissance. It's not one of the drugs being researched. No, no. Uh, there's some talk about researching it. There's some problems with it. One is that it it's a very long duration. It's It can be 14 hours, which, I mean, you know, if you're running a lab or a, or a clinic, that's two shifts, yes, right, for yes. each of the two guys. Yes,
0: right. So
1: not very practical that way. But when I was writing about psychedelics for How to Change Your Mind, I would ask people who were in the psychedelic community, what was their favorite psychedelic? And I was very surprised to hear many of them, most of them say, especially the old timers, mescaline, Mm. by far, you know, the king of materials, my favorite, that it was, you know, lucid and generous, because the 14 hours could be a, a yes, plus, depending yeah. on your point of view. Although I didn't feel that way. I mean, I was I was done with mescaline before mescaline was done with me when I tried okay. it. So I thought it would be interesting to look at. The other reason I wanted to look at it was in the first book on psychedelics, I really stuck very close to the scientific enterprise. And I did that for a couple of reasons. One was because science is the most authoritative discourse in our in our culture. And if you want to get people to take something seriously, you have to, you have to look at it through the lens of science. But that's not the only lens to look at psychedelics. There's a cultural lens too, and an historical lens. And I wanted to look at the kind of indigenous use of psychedelics. You know, in the West, they're very new. Um, they really don't come to scientific attention until the 50s and 60s. And there was a little bit around the turn of the last century with mescaline. But they, they kind of burst upon the West in the 50s and 60s. And they come without an instruction manual. They're very strange compounds. People really don't know what to make of them. And they, they go through this whole elaborate sloppy, reckless R&D program of people trying to figure out what are they good for, both in the labs, in the CIA, (laughs) and in the street. And the weird thing was, though, there was an instruction manual available, but we were too arrogant to to use it. Most of us were. There were a couple exceptions. And that was, of course, the, the native cultures that have been using psychedelics in their religious and healing practices for thousands of years. Mescaline that we have evidence of mescaline use from six thousand years ago in South Texas, on the Rio Grande, and it may have been older than that. And psilocybin, you know, used for at least a millennium in in Mexico. And so the question I posed is, what could we learn from these cultures about how to use these drugs in a constructive way? And what struck me was that, you know, we think of psychedelics in the West in the '60s as being a very disruptive force. Mm. Whether you think those disruptions were good or bad, there were things that needed to be disrupted, such as the war in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. But basically, we associate psychedelics with disruption of the status quo. But change context. Look at the Native American population, and the use of psychedelics there is profoundly conservative. It is a it is a way to to um, sustain a culture under threat. It's a way to heal. And it did enormous good for Native Americans at a moment of maximum crisis in their history. When they are, their culture is, you know, the destruction of their culture is official US government policy. So I'm talking about in the 1880s when, when they were forced onto reservations in Oklahoma, when their children were, were taken away from them, had their hair cut, and they were put in boarding schools with the express goal of killing the Indian and saving the man. It was just a horrible history and a traumatized people. And uh, mescaline was the the tool that allowed them to preserve their culture, heal things like alcoholism, which became of course an enormous problem on the reservations. This was a population that had never been exposed to alcohol and had very high levels of alcoholism. It's still a problem on the reservations, but the the so far the best treatment for it has been a peyote ceremony. So I wanted to look at that. I wanted to explore that indigenous use of psychedelics. And it's a actually an incredibly hopeful story of how these powerful substances can be used in a very constructive way. And I think we have a lot to learn from these people.
0: Yes. In fact, one of the things that came very clear to me was the, the power of the group. I mean, the fact that it's always used as in a group ceremony. Yes. It's not the individual self-exploration. It's about benefiting from being part of a, of a ritual and a, and a ceremony. And how to use
1: psychedelics in a group context, I think, is something that we're going to eventually have to explore. Because as I understand it, the peyote ceremony has certain things in common with an AA meeting, whereas there is a, a focus on an individual who's sharing their story And everyone is praying for that person and helping them craft a new self-narrative of rebirth. And I mean, you know how powerful group dynamics are, peer group pressure, um, that if you have everybody supporting you in that act of healing, of getting off alcohol, of of constructing that new narrative of who you are, it's enormously powerful. They don't take huge amounts of mescaline. You know, I, I don't. I don't know that they're having visions necessarily, but at the doses they're taking it, it's softening the boundaries of ego and, and allowing for a kind of collective consciousness that is powerful and healing. And, you know, I think that the people who are looking at mescaline now in the, in the research context, and there are a couple in the U.S., have their eye on alcoholism as an indication and have their eye on the potential of group work to deal in part with the fact that, you know, psychedelic therapy as now conceived is is based on an individual and two therapists and is, is very expensive in in one sense of resources. So what if it were practiced in a group and the history of mescaline may offer
0: some. Well, I think so. I think it's, it's very exciting that, because it's clearly safe. in a group, you know, the, the people aren't getting up and attacking each other. Not like when they're drunk. So you know, <laughs> there's benefits in that sense as well. No, it is. Yeah, people,
1: are, people enter this meditative trance-like state, and there is, there's no violence associated with it. And people can talk on mescaline. I mean, that's, it, it's, it has some of the, you know, it is a, a, a phenylethamine, not a tryptamine, and it has some of the qualities of MDMA, which is to say you, you feel very relational, you can speak, you're not going off in your own private world. And there are not that many hallucinations. You're very present. I mean, I had an opportunity to experiment with synthetic mescaline, and and this was during the pandemic, and, you know, when we all felt, still feel, very claustrophobic, and I thought this was going to take me out of my world uh, and be the kind of trip that I couldn't take in reality, but it was nothing like that in the event. It was a drug that immerses you in the here and now to a remarkable extent. You are just completely absorbed in whatever is in your world. And whatever is in your world is enough. It's There's so much interest. There's so much depth. There's so many nuances you've never experienced before.
0: And that was, I thought, fascinating. Yes, I I love the way you went back to the Huxley descriptions as well. You you had very sympathy with with his uh,
1: interpretation. And who knows, maybe his his descriptions influenced my experience. I mean, you know, I mean, we know that these experiences are constructed to a remarkable extent. And I think everybody who has read Huxley and probably many people who haven't have been influenced by his account. But this sense that there is more to reality than our consciousness admits to our awareness was a very, seemed just right. And that this reducing valve, as he referred to consciousness, was open wide. And that there was an overwhelming amount of information out there that uh, was admitted. And there were moments at the peak of the experience where it was just too much to bear. And it was just the immensity of reality was just, you know, just set me back. But, you know, I could look at a bowl of apricots for like a really long time and see things and have thoughts, you know, about them. I mean, that were just uh, completely absorbing. So yeah, it's an interesting and distinctive phenomenology. It's it's not like uh, the tryptamines, which really do take you somewhere else. I was right here, and and I was chained to the moment, you know, in a way I had never been. It was quite remarkable. It's it's a meditation in a way, a very deep meditation.
0: Well, one of the uh, things I found, you know, sort of paradox, I found that you pointed out so clearly is, you know, this the contrast between. The attempt of the American government to exterminate peyote use was basically built on the back of a country which was founded by people who were trying to liberate themselves from religious oppression. The irony never came to them. I, just... I know that the irony was lost on the Supreme Court
1: when they actually took away the Indians right to use peyote. And yes, I mean, what, what, are, what is the white man doing here? seeking religious freedom, and then taking it away from the people who are already here. Fortunately, that has been uh, restored, and that, you know, since 1994, Native Americans have had the right to use peyote in their sacrament. They're the only people for whom peyote is legal, and that is as it should be, I think, because there's also, I talk in the book, you know, I'm very aware that I don't want to start a fad for peyote because there's not enough of it, And it is precious to Native Americans. There are 250,000 people in the Native American church now, at least, and they rely on peyote in many ways. And it is a very slow-growing cactus. It takes 15 years from seed to usable button. And the population of peyote in the wild is crashing, and there's a big conservation effort underway. So if people have any interest in mescaline, they should look to synthetic mescaline or San Pedro, which is another cactus that produces it uh, from Bolivia and Peru. And that is easy to grow, uh, at least in the West Coast and probably not in the East Coast. And people grow it in England. I think they have to bring it inside in the winter. And that produces uh, mescaline also. But peyote, I, I think, we've taken enough from Native Americans, we should leave them their peyote.
0: Unless you want to grow it and you're very patient. Yeah. Sure, but it was a close thing i mean it, they could have lost i mean it was just a couple of very brave and principled americans that actually supported the indian stance and it took took nearly 100 years but the venture i mean it could have it could have gone it could have oh yeah it could have been no that's that
1: decision of uh of anton and scalia and the supreme courts could have stood and basically have, he absolutely. was making a judgment and this tells you how bad the drug war was then that the free exercise of religion, enshrined on the First Amendment, he said that had to give way to the needs of the government to fight the drug war, and that this religious liberty in the face of the drug war was a luxury we could not afford. I mean, just an outrageous decision. And it tells you how far we had strayed from our identity uh, because of this misbegotten war.
0: Absolutely. I mean, a fictitious a, a war fought on a kind of false premise well, nothing other really than political purpose. No, for a purpose, but for a political purpose, not a
1: not a public health purpose.
0: Well, uh, I think that's probably a very good point at which to end. And uh, thank you very much, Michael. It's been <laughs> wonderful going through with you. Oh,
1: my pleasure, Dave. I mean, it was great speaking to you. And uh, I hope we can do this in person sometime before too long. Well, uh, yeah, I'm looking for an invite now. Robin's over in San Francisco. I know. Well, he's going to, I'm sure he'll get you invited to come speak here in the Bay Area. And
0: uh, I will be there. I will look forward to that very much. And, and uh, your book will be a success, I'm sure. What's the next one? Is that a secret? I don't know yet. I have no idea. I've
1: got to start thinking about it, but I've been too busy.
0: <laughs> no, quite. Well, yeah. if I'm still around when you've written it, I'd love to have you back on the program. But, I will be happy to come back. Great pleasure talking to you, Dave. And to you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Well, that's the end of this episode of the Drug Science Podcast. Thank you for listening. But before you go, I would just like to share with you a question from our Drug Science community members. Recently, we recorded a very special podcast episode in which we invited all of our premium and philanthropic community members to ask me anything they like. Their questions were so good, I thought we should include one or two of them at the end of every podcast episode. So please enjoy this new segment of the show. Apologies for the audio quality as we recorded the session over Zoom. Hopefully they're vaguely relevant to what we've been discussing. And if you want to ask me anything, perhaps we could do an Ask David Anything, part two. Enjoy. So firstly, David, can you say something about the drugs uh, muscimol and ibotenic acid found in the agaric mushroom? And could there ever be a benefit from studying their effects as there have been for MDMA and psilocybin? Oh, it's a great question. Who is that person? That was from uh, Jeremy, who is in the call right now. All right. Hi, Jeremy. Well, I have to declare an interest, Jeremy. Look, I have to be absolutely clear about this. I am now working with a company trying to answer your question. The company is called PsychEd Wellness, and we are in the process of working out how we can get enough, Of the mushrooms, and purify the uh, the content of the mushroom, and get rid of the ibotenic acid, which is, for those of you who don't know it, is quite a toxic substance, and maximise the muscimol, which is the the psychedelic substance in the amanita mushroom. Why am I doing it? Well, I'm doing it because uh, amanita is the northern European, Siberian, Finnish alternative to the magic mushroom, and it's been around for millennia the term shaman is a siberian term and it comes uh, shamans were people that gave these mushrooms to northern europeans and they're particularly they're a, they're a very interesting mushroom because they grow in mountainous areas as well but they grow in forests and they they have to they can only grow where there's are synergistic with a particular kind of cedar tree so they only grow where, where, where you have trees, which will think, allow them to grow in, into their roots. So they're kind of relatively special. And historically, they're amazing. You know, there are, the early Christians used them, used, and they would have used the mushroom, but they would have prepared it in such a way to reduce the ibotenic acid and maximize the So, And I believe that was important in bonding, in the same way as ayahuasca is used in Latin American countries in, in, for religious processes to bring people together in churches. So muscimol was used in the, or Amanita was used by the early Christians. And that's probably why they could sustain the, the horrors of being, uh, for four centuries, being persecuted. In fact, there was evidence of, of it being used right up to about the 12th century. And then when the Catholic Church became an establishment and a business, and it, and it exterminated people that just wanted to be Christian as opposed to be Catholic, they tried to destroy the records of uh, which existed in in the church at the time of the use of these mushrooms, but they didn't get all rid of all of them. And in the Canterbury Psalter, which is one of the great medieval texts, religious texts, there's this wonderful image. I think it was it was it on day four. God, or day three, God created plants, and this beautiful, beautiful image uh, is of God creating mushrooms. Well, the only plants in the image. So, so it's likely that mushrooms, how have been around for a long time? There's multiple descriptions of its. Utility in helping people cope with the stress and the difficulties of, uh, of living in, in extremely hostile terrains like Siberia and Finland. You know, this, the Father Christmas story, you know, if, I'll tell you, I mean, it probably you know, probably don't all know it, but the, the Father Christmas story, Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer, is named because a reindeer love the red nose of the mushroom. When reindeer see Amanita mushrooms, they eat the mushroom. And other reindeers know that that's a good thing because other reindeers wait till they pee out the contents of the mushroom, which is the muscimol, and they drink they drink the urine of other of, of, of the reindeer because that putting muscimol through a, a living creature gets rid of the ibotenic acid, what comes out of the muscimol. So the reindeers knew that, and so the red-nosed reindeer is basically a, a sort of parody or a, a metaphor for the mushroom. But so Santa Claus. And because Santa Claus obviously looks like a mushroom, a giant red mushroom, doesn't he? He's you know he's red and white. And the story goes, the reason Santa Claus is thought to come down chimneys is because in those very northern, you know, those very northern latitudes, people would often get snowed in. They'd often the snow drifts would often completely, almost completely submerge their yurts and their tents, and people couldn't dig themselves out. So others that uh, had access to the mushrooms would would find them when they see the smoke coming out, so they knew that people were still living down there. And they dropped the mushrooms down the smoke hole so that the people could sustain themselves in their in their cold environment or in, in their tents submerged in the snow by the mushrooms. So that's why Santa Claus comes down the chimney. So yeah, I'm very interested in Amanita. I think it might have health and like well-being promoting properties. It might have anti-inflammatory properties. It's, uh, we're going to find out in the next few years when we get enough of the, um, the active ingredients to be able to test it. So follow this space.